the end of an era. For me, the hours come for a new generation to lead the Democratic caucus. Nancy Pelosi, the first woman elected speaker and the face of congressional Democrats for two decades, steps down as the party's leader in the House. We have fired Nancy Pelosi. And Republicans celebrate after taking control of the House. You know, right now, we need new leadership. But with an underwhelming performance in the midterms and Democrats keeping control of the Senate, the GOP is split over who to blame. In order to make America great and glorious again, I am tonight announcing my candidacy for President of the United States. And whether having former President Trump at the top of the 2024 ticket is a winning plan. Plus... And appointing a special counsel at this time is the right thing to do. The extraordinary circumstances presented here demand it. The attorney general appoints a special counsel to oversee the DOJ's investigations of the former president. Next. This is Washington Week. Good evening and welcome to Washington Week. On Thursday, Nancy Pelosi, the first woman elected Speaker of the House, made history as she announced her retirement as the leader of the Democratic caucus. Pelosi led House Democrats for two decades, including a combined eight years as House Speaker. During an emotional speech, she said she would remain in Congress and reflected on her efforts. I have enjoyed working with three presidents, achieving historic investments in clean energy with President George Bush. Transformative health care reform with President Barack Obama. And forging the future from infrastructure to health care to climate action with President Joe Biden. Pelosi's move comes after Republicans won back control of the House with a slim majority. They are expected to be led by current House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy after he was nominated to be Speaker by GOP House members. Here's McCarthy after Republicans won a final seat needed to capture a majority. I'm proud to announce the era of one-party Democrat rule in Washington is over. Washington now has a check and balance. The American people have a say in their government. And this new Republican leadership team is ready to get to work to put America back on the right track. On Wednesday, President Biden congratulated Republicans. In a statement, Biden said he was, quote, ready to work with House Republicans to deliver results for working families. On the Senate side, Democrats were able to hold on to control after key midterm wins. And Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell survived the first ever attempt to end his record-long tenure as GOP Senate leader. Meanwhile, this week, with some other big news, former President Donald Trump announced he is running for president again. And today... Attorney General Merrick Garland announced he had some news of his own. He is appointing a special counsel to lead the Justice Department's investigations into Trump, including his efforts to overturn the 2020 election results and his handling of classified documents after he left office. Joining me tonight to discuss this and more, Peter Baker, chief White House correspondent at The New York Times. He's also the co-author, along with his wife, Susan Glasser, of the book The Divider, Trump in the White House from 2017 to 2020. And Aaron Haynes, editor-at-large at the 19th. And joining me here in studio, Molly Ball, national political correspondent for Time magazine and author of Pelosi, a biography of the Speaker of the House. And last but not least, Leanne Caldwell, co-author of the Washington Post's early 202 newsletter and anchor of the Washington Post Live. So thank you all for being here. 
Molly, I want to come to you. You interviewed the, the House Speaker after she made this, this historic announcement that she's stepping down. Tell me a bit about what Pelosi told you about her own decision, but also the future of her party. That's right. She had just come off the House floor where she had given that speech where, you notice, she mentioned she enjoyed working with three presidents. There's another president that she didn't mention that she perhaps did not enjoy working with so much, that being President Trump. Uh, but, you know, it was very interesting. I've obviously uh, covered and studied her for a long time. And she was in this sort of flustered mood. Uh, we tried to pin her down. Was she, was she happy? Was she sad? Was she relieved? Was she, did she have any trepidation? She seemed very at peace with her decision. Uh, and the word she came up with finally was, was that she felt balanced. It was sort of a balance of all of those different emotions. You know, she talked a lot about the past, about uh, the, her political legacy from, from her father uh, and having, you know, been to the House floor for the first time when she was just six years old and he was a member of Congress. Uh, and so she was clearly reflecting on the sort of grand uh, span of her career. But at the same time, she was very excited about her future. You know, she's given up her leadership position, but she will be staying in Congress as a just regular rank-and-file uh, member of the House Democratic Caucus. And she seemed pretty excited about that. She feels like it's something she's missed out on for the last couple of decades. She talks about wanting to really spend time in her district, being yeah. able to represent her constituents in a way that she hasn't really been able to as she's been, you know, crisscrossing the country with all the responsibilities of the speaker, raising money at an incredible pace. She's raised more than a billion dollars over the course of her career for the House Democrats. And Pelosi is not the only one that's going to be stepping down. You have other leaders, Jim Clyburn, Steny Hoyer. They're also stepping aside, it seems, for a new generation of Democratic leaders. Talk about that and what that means for the party. Yeah, you know, there's been a lot of angst in the ranks of the House Democratic Caucus at the fact that these three leaders uh, have been together at the top for 15 years. And that means that there has been no way for ambitious young Democrats to move up in the ranks and make their own uh, career put and, and, and to put a new face on the party. And as much as, you know, the House Democrats uh, broadly support Pelosi Hoyer and Clyburn uh, and, and are sad to see them go, I think there's a lot of relief that there will be this generational turnover uh, and, and surprisingly a little drama, considering how, how many ambitious people are in that caucus. It has proceeded in very orderly fashion. It looks almost guaranteed uh, that, that Hakeem Jeffries, the current chair of the caucus, will become the new Democratic leader. And he has a deal uh, with uh, Catherine Clark of Massachusetts and Pete Aguilar from California to be second and third. So it'll be a very orderly transition. Uh, but all three of them are, are younger by, by, by three decades uh, than the leaders they'll be replacing. So it really will be a, a whole new era in the House Democratic Caucus. Certainly a systemic shift, um, Leanne. And what's interesting about Pelosi is even when you talk to Republicans, maybe they, some of them want to say this off the record, but there was a lot of respect there. She was very effective. She had loyalty for with Democrats, but also a little bit of fear mixed in there. Talk a little bit about what you're hearing about her time and the way forward. Yeah, so it's a lot. I was talking to a lot of members of Congress, a lot of Democrats, especially uh, yesterday on Capitol Hill, and they were so full of emotion. It was almost hard for them to even articulate how they felt. Um, every single person there, most, many Republicans, not all, um, but the ones who have been there for a while, and Democrats know that she has been a transformational leader. The things that she has been able to do um, with presidents on both sides of the aisle. The fact that she was able to pass such monumental legislation just in the past two years with a five-seat, sometimes only four-seat majority in the House of Representatives, which is going to mimic 
what Kevin McCarthy is most likely going to have moving forward. So it'll be an interesting test of contrast here. But uh, Democrats, as Molly said, they, they use the word bittersweet. Um, they feel that they were so honored to be able to learn from her, to be able to gov be governed by her, to have a leader like her. But people are also ready for something new. And I think that they're really excited about the future. Um, but they're also a little worried and trepidatious, especially on the fundraising front. Yeah. Everyone has mentioned the fundraising, the amount of money she has been able to re raise. No one has been able to match it. Of course, when you're in the position of leader, you automatically raise more money. You have to do more. But that is definitely a concern for people. And you, you talked about the test of contrast. So I want to ask you a bit about what's going on on the GOP side. Kevin McCarthy doesn't have, it seems right now at least, the floor votes to be House Speaker. He needs 218. There are some lawmakers on the record in his party saying he doesn't have the votes yet, which is pretty interesting. But you also had Mitch McConnell being challenged by Rick Scott. Tell me about the internal dynamics there and the way forward for the Republicans. The Republican Party is at such an interesting moment right now. They have been for a, year, a few years with Donald Trump at the helm, but Donald Trump had such a grip on the party, and now you're seeing the split and the challenges uh, in Congress, especially with the kind of more MAGA side of the party really challenging more traditional Republicans. And you have the Republicans like Mitch McConnell and even John Thune, the number two, they're trying to hold on to a Republican Party of the past. They want that to be the Republican Party of the future. And then there's this new generation of Republicans, younger, more conservative, more extreme, who think that the party is something different. And they are trying to push their own agenda and their own ideals and their own policy. So it's going to be really, really fascinating um, in the next two years with these you know, divided Congress, divided government, and uh, such a small majority. And Aaron, I mean, Leanne here is calling it fascinating. It might be fascinating. It might be a little chaotic. Um, <laughs> tell me what you're hearing as Nancy Pelosi steps down, especially when it comes to this sort of generational shift that's coming as governing might become harder in this Congress. Yeah, fascinating, interesting, all of the above. Uh, good to be with you on quite a Washington week, Yamish. I mean, look, I think we also have to talk about uh, the reality that representation matters. And for 35 years, Nancy Pelosi uh, has been a standard bearer for the Democratic Party. And so what does that mean in terms of gender and, and power and leadership? I mean, she talked in that floor speech about how when she came to Congress, there were 12 Democratic women, and now there are over 90. And she's still wanting to see that number grow. Talked about, as, as Molly said, you know, being on the House floor for the first time at six years old and saying she never thought she would go from being a homemaker to being House leader. Uh, you know, so, so, so just what she's been able to do to, to really expand this country's political imagination, uh, I think really does say a lot uh, and, and, and will have a big effect on what representation means going forward. But even in her exit, she is still somebody who is leading, right? Saying that she is gonna step aside and clear the way for this younger and, and more diverse generation of leadership. And, and honestly, that is something that is more reflective of where the Democratic Party is today. I mean, you look at if uh, the, the House leadership is to go through as as uh, as advertised with Hakeem Jeffries, Catherine Clark, and Pete Aguilar, I mean that is uh, the, the future of this party: younger voters, women, people of color, really representing at the highest levels in government. These are the base voters of the Democratic Party, and so to see them reflected and for her to acknowledge that that really is where uh, the party needs to go, I think, is also an example and a testament to her leadership.
And Peter, all of this news is coming as um, President Biden is getting ready to turn 80 years old. I wonder what you're hearing um, from White House officials about his own political future and also the future of his agenda, because Republicans are going to be the ones in control of the House. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. The timing isn't necessarily the best from the White House's point of view for a senior Democrat to say it's time to hand over power to a new generation, right? Because, of course, President Biden turns 80 on Sunday. It's a milestone he's not all that particularly happy about. He said in a recent interview, I can't even say the word out loud. He can't say the word 80 out loud. He said, I don't believe it. I can't believe it. Understandably, of course, and politically, of course, as well. He's not eager to advertise that, the first octogenarian president we've had at a time when he's thinking about whether to run for re-election or not. If he runs for re-election, that age question is going to come up again and again. He has said it's a legitimate question to ask. He would be 86 at the end of a second term. Uh, we've obviously not had a president uh, at that stage before. And people will ask questions about that. Of course, they'll ask questions about Donald Trump. He's four years younger than President uh, Biden. But there have been questions about whether age has diminished his capacity as well. So these are issues we're going to be seeing. But it's a really a generational moment, right, when we see these two elder statesmen, if you will, not statesmen necessarily, elder figures of their two parties preparing to head off against each other for the presidency at a time when the House leadership is, is passing the buck now to a new generation and showing that it's time to, to, to give the reins to, uh, to Hakeem Jeffries and his team uh, at a younger age. So look, you know, President Biden will say, judge me not by my age as a number, but judge me by the actions I'm able to accomplish, the things I've been able to put on the scoreboard in effect, legislation that affect people lives. Uh, and that will be the argument that he will make going forward. But he's telling, of course, that on Sunday, he's not going to have some sort of public show about his birthday. His wife will throw a nice brunch for him. And then I don't expect that you'll see a lot of cameras there. Well, that's surprising. I thought maybe there might be some hip hop stars or someone, uh, Cardi B maybe at the White House, but apparently that's not happening, Peter. Um, I do want to stick with you for a minute because AG, Attorney General Merrick Garland, he had some news of his own, which is that he is now appointing a special counsel um, to oversee investigations into Donald Trump. He said part of the reason why he was doing this, he almost felt like his hand was forced because now Donald Trump is running for president. What more do we know about this decision and the implications there? Yeah, look, he, I think, has resisted this for a long time. He's told us for two years that the Justice Department could act fairly in this case, even though it's obviously fraught with politics. But once you have Donald Trump as an active candidate running against Merrick Garland's boss, presumably, assuming uh, President Biden does run for re-election, it becomes that much more complicated. And if you look at the, the rules for when you appoint a special counsel, in Merrick Garland's view, uh, all three criteria were met, which is, is there a potential crime? Is there a perception of conflict of interest? And is it in the national interest, is it in the public interest to have a special counsel? Now, a special counsel isn't fully independent, though. A special counsel still reports to the attorney general in the end, and it will be in the end the attorney general's decision whether to press charges or not. But I think by having uh, a special counsel look at the evidence, what Merrick Garland is trying to say is it will not be as, as politically you know, um, uh, radioactive as it would have been if, if he, the president's appointment, had done it. Having said that, President Trump is going to speak later tonight. He is not, of course, going, accepting this with equanimity. He is saying it's political anyway. So it may be that appointing a special counsel does not, in fact, cure the issue, which is the perception of politics, or at least the 
the uh, you know the, the tool. It's 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 a it's a good thing for President Trump to be able to point to be able to say it's political because the more he says it's political, the more he convinces his base that he's not in, he's not guilty of anything. That anything that happens to him is because his uh, his rivals are out to get him. That's the line he's going to use. So it's a fraught moment, and it's going to be hard and a challenge for both Merrick Garland and his new special counsel Jack Smith to go forward and make sure that they look as un apolitical as possible as they evaluate the evidence and bring it forward if they do. And Molly, you were at Mar-a-Lago for President Trump's announcement. What do you make of the special counsel being brought in? And what so tell us a little bit about also your observations, having seen Trump in person make this announcement. Yeah, you know, it was really hard to avoid feeling like Trump had sort of been cornered into making this announcement. He was sort of trapped, right? Because he put this on the calendar before the election at a time when it when he and pretty much everyone else expected there would be a big Republican victory to celebrate. Uh, and then when that didn't happen, he didn't feel like he could back down or, or cancel or postpone, even though there were a lot of people urging him to do that, in particular with this uh, the, this uh, runoff in Georgia still on uh, still on the schedule in early December. Uh, so, you know, he seemed like he kind of didn't want to be there. He, a lot of people have used the, the, the phrase low energy, the uh, memorable Trump coinage uh, that he applied to Jeb Bush in 2016. Uh, but, you know, I, he was sort of glaring at the teleprompter like, like it had made him mad in some way, you know. He, it, it was a speech, that it was a scripted speech. He mostly stuck to the script. He didn't attack his rivals. He didn't go off on, you know, Ron DeSantis or anybody else, which he had done, you know, in the days preceding the announcement. Uh, he, he, he talked a lot about policy, talked about uh, the successes of his administration, uh, the failures of the Biden administration, uh, and so just, just making the case for, for why uh, he believes he needs to run again. Uh, but it was a very long speech. Most of his speeches are. I, I've rarely seen a Trump speech that was less than an hour. Um, and uh, it was a packed ballroom, the, the sort of usual crew of hangers-on, whether you're talking about the people who go to the rallies or the members of Mar-a-Lago who tend to hang out there or the former figures in Trump's administration. But one thing that was missing was sitting Republican elected officials. Oh. You did not have any sitting members of Congress except for the uh, disgraced former, soon to be former representative Madison Cawthorn. Uh, it, and, and, and even now, you know, several days later, there have been very few endorsements for the former president. So if he thought he was going to sort of be able to waltz into this nomination, uh, having already run twice, it, that doesn't look like it's going to happen. It really looks like it's going to be a rocky road for him, particularly with, you know, the continuing recriminations from the midterm. And Leanne, one, one thing that's the sort of result of Republicans not doing as well as, the, as they wanted to in the midterms is that Repu Democrats, rather, still have control of the Senate and they can still get through judicial nominees, which is critical in the minds of a lot of White House officials I've been talking to. Can you talk a little bit yeah. about that and sort of the, the real results of the fact that this, this Trump sort of endorsed midterms, um, that they didn't go the way that Republicans wanted them to go? Yeah, there's a huge impact um, on both sides. So, so there's going to be very little policy that comes out of the next two years. Um, it's going to be a lot of gridlock. It's going to be a lot of fighting. It's going to be very difficult for uh, Congress to do the things it has to do, like fund the government or lift the debt limit, which is where the United States has to pay its credit card bills. Um, but one thing that, that the Senate can do, like you mentioned, is confirm Biden's 
judicial nominees and his administration officials. And that is huge. So for the past six months, Democrats had been working so quickly in the Senate, as quickly as possible, everything moves slowly, to confirm as many people as possible, because they thought that they were not going to have control of the Senate the next two years. They were judges, judges, judges. Um, now that they have that, uh, they are going to continue to try to remake the federal judiciary. They already have installed a record number of judges in the first two years. They're going to keep moving along that pace. And so this is actually, you know, this is kind of the Mitch McConnell playbook, um, uh, trying to, to do what McConnell did over the last four years of the Trump administration. And the other thing that Senate Democrats are doing is that they pushed for marriage equality. Now, I should mm -hmm. say 12 Republicans, it, it seems, also voted along with them to advance this bill. But that also shows you that they're trying to get stuff done. Yeah, they are, especially in this lame deck session when Democrats still have control of both houses of Congress. Uh, the House passed it before the elections. Now the Senate is set to pass it after um, after Thanksgiving. Uh, and these procedural votes, they got the support of 12, Dem 12 Republicans, which is um, pretty significant. Um, and they have a long list of things that they're trying to do when they get back. Um, we'll see how much they're going to get done. But one of them is the Electoral Count Act to make sure what happened on January 6, 2021 does not happen again. And Aaron, talk about what you think and what, we, what your reporting shows um, Republicans might do with the power that they will wield in the House coming up. Yeah, I mean, to Leanne's point, Republicans are going to be focused on investigations. They've already signaled their day one agenda. And, and unless I missed anything, that really didn't include much in the way of legislative priorities. And, and that makes sense. Again, to, to Leanne's point, they won't be able to get much, if anything, passed uh, or signed into law in a Democratic-controlled Senate and a White House. So uh, really, I think raising concerns about Democrats ahead of the 2024 election also helps Republicans, as they head out on the campaign trail, giving them talking points, headed into a presidential year. Uh, but I think also this announcement of, of this Department of Justice special counsel in Mar-a-Lago in the January 6th probe uh, will, will be something of a counterweight, although obviously these are two different arenas with two very different potential consequences. And Aaron, I want to just stick with you. You're obviously from Georgia. The, the, that runoff is going to be happening. Tell me a little bit about the consequences here of the GOP possibly sticking with Trump and what you're hearing from people who are sort of wondering whether or not the party can pivot away from him. Yeah, well, I mean, you saw in, in, in uh, Trump's uh, announcement of his, his third presidential campaign, again, he, he mentioned Herschel Walker in that speech. He encouraged uh, voters in Georgia to, to uh, stick with Herschel Walker. Uh, the Herschel Walker-Trump relationship still still seems to be pretty strong, although he did not come to Georgia to campaign for him in a general. And it's un I'd be curious to see if he plans on doing that between now and that runoff election. Uh, but, but many of the voters that I saw on the ground in Georgia, uh, very much uh, the ones who were in support of Herschel Walker were also very much still in support of uh, the former president. And so that, that still could be a very strong relationship that, that could be uh, potent for Walker in a way that it didn't necessarily factor into, say, for example, the, the governor's race in Georgia. And Peter, it's because this was such a crazy week in news, I want to ask you about your, well, you're going to have to help me with a little bit of your Russia experience as a reporter having reported there. Um, tell us a little bit about this Poland missile attack. So many people thought, wait, are we about to go into World War III? I know their midterms are important, but tell us the biggest takeaway there. Yeah, I think that is the biggest takeaway. It's a red flag because it's, it shows how close we could come 
to an escalatory spiral, right? We don't pay a lot of attention day in and day out here to the war in Ukraine, but it is ravaging that country. So far, it has stayed contained within that country, but there is a chance at any moment it could spill over. And if it spills over like it seemed to do for a few minutes in Poland or another NATO ally, then that raises the question about what the United States and what the rest of Europe are going to do in response. Fortunately, in this case, it does appear to be more of an accidental uh, situation where a Ukrainian defense missile trying to shoot down a Russian missile crossed over the line as opposed to some sort of a Russian attack or even a Russian-sponsored accident that would have still raised a lot of questions. Uh, it's obviously a tragedy because a lot of, because people, a couple of people died. But for this moment, at least, we're not looking at the knife's edge of a wider war. But you can see how easily it could happen. It could happen at almost any moment. And I don't know that the rest of the world is really prepared for that, really ready for what that might look like. Because if you have Russia and the United States on the opposite sides of a, of a shooting war, you don't know how far it will lead. And in some ways, in the last five seconds or so we have here, Peter, it really shows how important who pres who's president is in this country and abroad. It does. That's exactly right. The person you want to be in charge at a time when we face, in theory, the most nuclear dangerous moment since the Cuban Missile Crisis is all the more important, and that reemphasizes the stakes in this 2024 election. Yeah, well, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much tonight to our panel for bringing all of your stellar reporting, and thank you all of you at home for joining us and watching. And on tomorrow's PBS News Weekend, what the appointment of a special counsel means for former President Trump's ongoing legal troubles. I'm Yamiche Alcindor. Good night from Washington.